Like, what we all really want is to feel like we're achieving our true underlying goal. Like, we're in alignment with our values and we're doing what's most important to us fundamentally in life. And wealth, like Socrates and the Stoics say, uh, all it gives us is opportunity. Like, it gives us more control over, uh, over our environment, in a sense. And so what, what really matters is whether we're using that wisely or foolishly. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon, the investing show with a buzz. Sit back, relax, let's take the edge off, grab a nice glass of bourbon, and enjoy. Cheers from your host, James Vermillion. But first, let me kindly remind you, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. I'm your host, James Vermillion, founder of Vermillion Private Wealth. About a year and a half ago, I stumbled upon Stoicism, the philosophy. I'd previously read quotes from Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, and Epictetus, but never really took the next step to figure out what Stoicism was all about. Since then, I've been working my way through the Stoic canon, reading ancient texts and modern takes, and I found it to be a very useful and practical philosophy for life. After reading How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, I knew I had to reach out to author Donald Robertson. Donald is a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist and an expert on Stoic philosophy. He worked as a psychotherapist for about 20 years in London, England, where he ran a training school for therapists before emigrating to Canada in 2013 to focus on his writing and training courses. He now divides his time between Greece and Canada. Donald is one of the founding members of Modern Stoicism a multidisciplinary team of psychologists, therapists, and academic philosophers responsible for running Stoic Week. He's the author of How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, Stoicism and the Art of Happiness, and the soon-to-be-published graphic novel, Verissimus, The Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius. In our discussion, Donald explains some of the practical techniques Stoics use in dealing with life, and it just so happens that many of these techniques are also useful to investors which is why Stoicism has grown in popularity in the investing community over the last decade or so. Whether or not you're interested in philosophy or Stoicism, I'm positive that you'll walk away with something from this discussion that will help you in your life, financial or otherwise. Enjoy my discussion with Donald Robertson. Hello, Donald. Thanks for joining me today. How are you? I'm very well, James. I'm speaking to you from Montreal today. I just arrived a couple of days ago. Very much looking forward to our conversation. Yes, uh, I am too. I've got to say I'm as excited about this conversation as I've been about any in a long time. And and part of that is because of what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about stoicism today. You've probably heard this many times, but I came across stoicism quite by accident. Mm-hmm. Really, I I was, uh, you know, I'm always on the prowl for quotes and interesting tidbits to share with my clients, especially during, during periods of market volatility. And I kept coming across over the last several years, quotes from Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus 
and Seneca, kind of the three most prominent Stoic philosophers that people know. Mm-hmm. And finally, at some point, I got tired of seeing them. And I, and I said, who were these people? Because the things they said were so relevant um, to what I was doing and the things going on in the world. And yet I knew that their philosophy and, and you know, they lived thousands of years ago. So I really just took an interest um, and dug in um, about a year and a half ago. In the last six months, I've literally read everything I can get my hands on, including your book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. And I absolutely loved it. I think it's a, an incredible introduction to Stoicism. And it's it's a great mixture of history and pragmatism and, and um, explaining ways people can use Stoicism. So uh, love the book and I'm very much looking forward to your upcoming book, a graphic novel, which will be my first graphic novel I've ever read, uh, Verissimus. So um, yeah, I'm really excited to chat, Donald. Cool. I'm glad you enjoyed the books. Yeah, Verissimus is kind of my first graphic novel as well. Like I had to have a crash course uh, in understanding graphic novels and, and writing them. It was a bit of a new, it's a new medium for me. Yeah, and I'm sure that's quite a, uh, a different shift as far as writing style and, of course, the introduction of the graphics themselves. So I think it'll also be an interesting shift for a reader or somebody like me, whether it's someone who's new to Stoicism and finds it through that new medium or someone who knows about Stoicism kind of seeing it uh, in a little bit different light. But I would like to start maybe a little bit different. I've listened to to you on on numerous shows and podcasts and um, courses and different things, and I've listened to a lot of others who are um, you know well uh, read and and educated in Stoicism. So I, instead of starting with like the kind of background on Stoicism, I'd like to go a little bit different direction because I'd like to show people right up front how Stoicism might be applicable. I think that could could maybe keep someone who. <laughs> who might not think they're interested in stoicism and 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 push stop uh, to keep listening because I do think it's been very helpful to me and I know it has yeah. been to many others. I'd like to start there if that works for you. Yeah, I, or I'd back up a little tiny bit and just add to what you've said. So you find stoicism beneficial. I find stoicism personally beneficial as well. I'm also one of the founders of the Modern Stoicism nonprofit organization, which does research on stoicism. It's been doing that for over a decade now. And we've had, I think, about 20,000 people altogether complete Stoic Week, which is our online course about Stoicism. And we've gathered mountains of research data from participants. Um, But we also get emails from hundreds and hundreds of people like have done over the the last 10 years or so, telling us in, in many cases how Stoicism is absolutely transformed their life so you know we're we're inundated really with stories from people who say that stoicism was a a game changer a life changer for them um so maybe that's a good place to start what you know if it's benefited all these other people you know how is it benefiting them and what could your listeners get from it well absolutely and i i've been drawing parallels i i've often said that i feel like a lot of times investing in the stock market is like this microcosm of life Mm -hmm. and just by studying a lot of the world's best investors and and their behaviors and their mindset, you kind of start to see that a lot of the behaviors they have don't just make them good investors. It, it also helps them in a lot of other areas in their lives. So as I've kind of read about Stoicism, I've thought to myself, and I can't really help it, um, and don't get me wrong, Stoicism is a philosophy of you know for life, not not to help you get rich. I think that would be kind of anti-Stoic, <laughs> and we could we could touch on that. But I do think there are secondary benefits 
um, that, that kind of go all, all across the spectrum of life when you, when you start to implement, uh, many of the teachings and exercises and techniques, techniques mm-hmm. that, um, the Stoics taught. So, and I'll give you an example. One of the things I've found particularly useful is this idea of, of the view from above and, and just kind of zooming out a little bit. Can you talk about that and how yeah. that might be useful to someone really in any area of their life? Well, again, I'm going to respond before we get into the view from above with a little bit of an aside. And that is, I find there are many groups of people that are interested in stoicism, such as the military and athletes and investors. And I thought, these seem like quite different groups, you know. And then one day it dawned on me that I think what they get from stoicism has something to do with the fact that these are people who understand high stakes. And uh, Mm. I think that's what draws them to stoicism for some reason. Like, you know, guys in the, the U.S. Marines talk about stoicism in a similar way to investors. You know, it's uh, it's an interesting, just a, an aside about the, the way that people are drawn to stoicism, what they seem to get from it. And also, I just want to mention a little quote. The Stoics were uh, influenced by Socrates. Socrates is kind of like the godfather of stoicism. In Plato's Apology, which I think is the most important philosophical text in the Western canon, I don't normally recommend books to people, funnily enough, with one exception, and that's Plato's Apology, because you could read it in a couple of hours. Like it, it would be like reading Shakespeare or something if you've never, you know, looked at Shakespeare. It, everyone should read Plato's Apology. And in it, Socrates says, look, people think that wealth is the most important thing in life. And he says, I think, actually, that they've all got it back to front and that what's most important to the good life is what he calls arete, which means wisdom and self-discipline, moral wisdom. It's usually translated as virtue, but that's not a very good translation. It'd be better understood as a kind of practical wisdom. Uh, This -hmm. is the most important thing to life. But then he adds something kind of interesting. He says wealth and all the other good things in life are a consequence of having this kind of wisdom, in fact. And so other people have kind of got it the wrong way around. They're chasing after wealth. They should be, if they really wanted wealth, they'd be better off to turn their attention around and focus more on developing their own character. Now, the view from above is one of like about a dozen or so psychological tools that the Stoics use in order to help them understand arity or moral wisdom and develop these character traits that Socrates thought were so important. Like, you know, were really the, the kind of end in itself of life, but also, you know, led to us managing wealth better. Um, and handling our relationships better and all the other external things that go on in life. The view from above, most people are familiar with because um, Marcus Aurelius' Meditations is probably the most popular Stoic text. And towards the end of that book, he really focuses on this idea of viewing events from high above. I I think the obvious analogy is if you've seen these old movies like Clash of the Titans, it's kind of like the Olympian gods, like Zeus and the other gods, uh, on top of Mount Olympus, looking down on mankind like the pieces on a chessboard or something like that, or like ants below. So this Mm -hmm. kind of elevated perspective that the ancient Greeks kind of imagined in mythology that the gods had. But also, more, I guess more conceptually, more philosophically, um, when ancient philosophers did cosmology, when they tried to study the universe as a whole, which is was part of ancient philosophy, um, they were thinking about the whole of space and time 
in talking about the totality of existence. And when they did that, it kind of expanded their minds in a way. It encouraged them to think about things in a broader, more holistic way. So the whole of ancient cosmology, I think, is can be viewed as a sort of contemplative practice. And I think that's how the ancient Greeks understood it. But another little aside, and there's a little bit of a story to this. I, I read a little bit of ancient Greek. You know, I speak a little bit of modern Greek. Sometimes I get the two mixed up, and I, I speak a, a mixture of ancient and modern Greek with a Scottish accent, <laughs> which kind of really confuses my friends. Um, this is a bit of a mess. But I, I, I do read a little bit of ancient Greek. And so I've read the meditations hundreds of times. And one of the most famous passages in it, Marcus is talking about the view from above, and he says, a mind that's free from violent passions, like fear and anger, uh, he means, um, is an impenetrable citadel. And people like that quote, but it always kind of bugged me, because I thought, what is the Greek word that they are translating as impenetrable citadel? I thought it just doesn't kind of, so I'd be curious to know what that actually is in Greek. Um, so I never got round to checking, and then one day I finally had a spare moment, and I looked, and I, I got a surprise, because I suddenly realised that the Greek word is Acropolis, and it never dawned on me that that mm. was literally what he was saying. Marcus, although he was a Roman emperor, wrote in Greek, bit of historical trivia for you, like most Romans in the imperial period, most educated Romans, were pretty bilingual in Latin and Greek, and certainly philosophy was predominantly done in Greek. So... Right. He says uh, it's the view from the Acropolis. Now, the Acropolis is this hill in the middle of Athens with uh, the Parthenon on top, the Temple of Athena. So it's sacred. And it looks down on the Agora, the marketplace where all the business was conducted. Elsewhere in the meditations, Marcus says the view from above is like looking down on law courts, uh, people trading, people getting married and divorced. Like It's all the activity that goes on in the city centre, um, the, and marketplace, and particularly in Athens, everything was condensed in that small space. Even religious rituals were carried out there. And also, the courtroom and prison were there, where Socrates was put on trial in Plato's Apology, and then subsequently executed. So the most dramatic event in the history of Western philosophy also went down beneath the Acropolis in the Agora. Marcus actually uses the word Agora as well when he's describing this. So I think it doesn't come through in the translation, but he's imagining literally, uh, although incidentally he hadn't been there until after he wrote this, he's imagining this famous view from the Parthenon looking down on the Agora where Socrates was put in trial and executed. And he wants us in general to, when we're experiencing stress or challenging situations, to imagine a similar kind of elevated perspective for several reasons. Now, you might think, well, that's kind of cool. People call it a, a helicopter perspective or whatever. But I, I really want to emphasize that these guys aren't just kind of whimsically, you know, toying with ideas. A lot of the things that... I, I don't say this lightly, James. I really, I really don't. But uh, the Stoics, without a shadow of doubt in my mind, were way, way ahead of their time in terms of their grasp of cognitive psychology. So my, my field is cognitive behavioral psychotherapy. I don't say that lightly. Like They right. really have a very profound understanding. For instance, the Stoics understand far more about cognitive psychotherapy than Sigmund Freud or Carl Jung or most of the pioneers of modern psychotherapy. 
would those guys are primitive by comparison to what the Stoics actually understood. So this broadening of perspective that they ask us to train ourselves in in every in many different ways. Marcus Aurelius says he visualizes this every day. Like he literally says he this is a regular daily practice for him. Right. But it, broadening his perspective to imagine the current moment is part of uh, a wider context in both space and time. Now, the reason that's so ahead of its time is the flip side, uh, we know from research on modern psychopathology and the psychology of emotions, that when people get upset, when they get really angry or really anxious, uh, their scope of attention narrows and they, a number of cognitive biases come into play, particularly selective attention or selective uh, thinking, we tend to call it. So people become narrowly focused on potential sources of threat if they're anxious, or they become narrowly focused on things that make them angry about other people when they're angry. Um, and so it's kind of confirmation bias as well, in a way. You know, when we're anxious, we spot more things to be anxious about. When we're angry, we notice more things to be angry about. <laughs> and that narrowing of attention, it's like tunnel vision. It's like putting things under a magnifying glass. Um, I think investors would be interested in that, you know, it, it, it's irrational, um, it's distorted thinking, and it's an insidious and deeply dangerous type of cognitive distortion because it looks like it's rational. Like, we look at something that someone did that makes us angry, like, and we think, but he did. Someone calls you an idiot, but you think, but he did just call me an idiot. Like, but it may be <laughs> that you're ignoring that five minutes ago he helped an old lady across the street. Or for 20, right. 20 years, he's been like nothing but supportive and helpful to you. So it's selective thinking. It's deceptive because it focuses on something that may be true, but it takes it out of context in a way that utterly transforms and distorts its significance. It, it's why in court we swear an oath to speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, because a partial truth is potentially just as much of a lie. It's what we also call a lie of omission. So when we get angry or anxious or depressed and we engage in selective thinking, in a way we're, we're committing a lies of omission toward ourselves. Um, and the Stoics understood this and thought that we should train ourselves to do the opposite. I, I think you touched on a couple uh, really important things. I liked what your, your comment about context, uh, you know, putting in context space and time. And I think that's something investors need to, need to do. And that's why I've often told to tell my clients, you know, zoom out this, this volatility, whatever we're experiencing yeah. today, these issues that we're dealing with today, whether they're geopolitical or, you know, what the federal reserve's doing or interest rates or inflation, like you've got to zoom out. Those things might seem like a major uh, big deal today. And if you're watching a daily chart, mm -hmm. you're going to see all these massive up and downs, but zoom out. And then you can really put put things into a, a much better, clear perspective um, and stop worrying so much about things that you don't have control over to begin with. It might be nice and, just to kind of add to that, that one of the reasons that this concept is so familiar to the Stoics and other ancient Greek philosophers is that they have this idea of reversal of fortune from Greek tragedy. Like, so somebody, something good will happen to somebody like in a Greek tragedy, and then because of their narrative structure, like typically, you know, they're setting them up for a fall and something surprising happens bad, like that's bad later, or someone has bad luck, but then it turns out in the long term, it's actually good luck in disguise. 
And so the, Sto the Stoics realized, look, you can get, they could give lots of examples from Greek mythology and tragedy of situations that where good, what seems like good fortune turns out to be bad fortune or vice versa. And there are many ups and downs if we listen to the, the whole story. Socrates' famous favorite example of this was that Socrates uh, lived in Athens during a period of incredible turmoil during the Peloponnesian War. And uh, he was surrounded by people who complained about their poverty, um, about their lack of status in Athenian society, um, and so on. And uh, Socrates lived during a period where the Spartans defeated the Athenians and put a military junta in control of Athens, who rounded up and executed thousands of wealthy Democrats and metics or, or foreign uh, residents in Athens. And Socrates would say to his poor, uh, you know, anonymous, uh, you know, unsuccessful friends, you guys are the only ones that are still alive. Like, <laughs> so you, you thought your poverty like, was like right. catastrophic, but actually, you know, like it kind of was a blessing in disguise because all the wealthy Athenians had their throats slit like, and they were thrown in a mass grave or whatever, you know, because mm -hmm. the tyrants mm -hmm. wanted to seize their wealth. So what seemed like a disadvantage actually worked out in your favor in the long run. And he he talks about this in Plato's Republic and says, you know, the wise man suspends judgment um, and he waits to, to see how things pan out in the longer term. I hadn't heard that one. That's a great example. And really, you kind of led into to another technique that I think the Stoics use fairly frequently in all areas of life, and that is suspending judgment and not being too quick to react to things. Um, and I, I think that's one, one thing that I know I've tried to focus on is a separating, you know, my, my value judgment from reality, um, and taking things for, for what they are instead of kind of jumping to a conclusion and determining whether it's good or bad or, or catastrophizing whatever it is that's happening. And, and you can start to see just for, you know, from the things you've said, Donald, how all of these kind of techniques start to play into one another. Yeah. And, and they really <laughs> connect rather nicely, in my opinion. That's how I know when someone's actually practicing stoicism, like rather than just kind of like reading blog posts about it or whatever, because they'll realize that most of the techniques actually overlap and complement one another. And they're kind of like different facets of, of the same thing, really. Um, the view from above tends to lead to something that in modern psychology is such a nuanced and unfamiliar idea to most people that we have to have a jargon term for it. So I try to avoid psychobabble, but sometimes we have to make <laughs> words up because there isn't a word for something. like. So there's this thing, like there's this um, thing that goes on in our mind that we call cognitive distancing in psychology. And it's so basic and it's so well established now as one of the most important mechanisms in therapy. And yet it's kind of unfamiliar. It's a subtle concept. But again, like, and I don't say, I don't say this lightly, the Stoics, I almost certainly, 99.9% sure the Stoics pretty much understood this idea. They refer to it in a number of different ways. 2,300 years ago. Um, yeah, it's incredible. It's mind like, Sigmund Freud had no concept like, of this. Carl Jung didn't grasp this idea, but every cognitive therapist now uses this because the modern research, particularly over the past 10 or 20 years, shows how useful cognitive distancing is as a therapeutic tool 
um, and across the board with almost any type of problem. So I should explain very briefly what it is. You know, having said, it's hard to explain. Aaron T. <laughs> Beck, the founder of Cognitive Therapy, said, look, imagine you're wearing rose-tinted glasses and you look around you and you've been wearing them for such a long time that you forget they're on your face and you start to think that poodles are actually pink and houses are pink and people are pink and your kitchen is pink because you're fusing the colour of the lenses in your mind with the external objects that you're looking at through those lenses. So you don't think, mm-hmm. like, this. I'm wearing pink glasses. You just think, no, the world is pink. You've forgotten, like, that you're looking through a filter. And then someone comes and knocks your glasses off and you suddenly realise, oh, it's the glass of the lenses that's pink, not the actual things that I was looking at. Now, that might seem like a kind of weird little example, but the cognitive distancing would be the ability to separate the pinkness from the objects that we're looking at. That's the distance, to create separation or distance between the colour and the thing that you're looking at. And you might think, well, who cares about pinkness, Donald? But in cognitive therapy, we're actually talking about value judgments that we project onto the external world, such as most typically catastrophizing. So thinking, this is awful, it's a catastrophe, you know, it's a complete disaster. And a cognitive therapist might encourage the client to realize in nature, there is no disaster. There's just atoms moving around, right? Like the disastrousness, the the catastrophic quality, it, it, it all comes from you. Like it's all a perspective that you're uh, adopting. You know, it consists of value judgments that you're projecting onto external events, which arguably in their in their nature are inherently neutral. Like, and and what highlights that in the cognitive therapist knew this, but uh, uh, sorry, the the ancient Stoics knew this, and the cognitive therapists still do this today. One simple way to highlight that is just to say, you know this event that really upsets you? Like, do other people looking at this event feel the same way? Or, you know, do you know other people that view it and just go, meh, it's not a big deal? Or maybe they even see it as an opportunity rather than a catastrophe. Um, And a, a similar question would be, imagine yourself 20 years from now looking back on losing your job or your girlfriend leaving you or you know, your business folding or or something like that, like, would you still view it in the same way? You know, would you view it as being as catastrophic or maybe as being bad but not the end of the world? Or would you look back on it and view it as the best thing that ever happened to you in a sense or as a potential opportunity? You know, are there other perspectives available that could potentially be adopted? And if so, that's like different coloured lenses or glasses that you could look at it through. And so the cognitive cognitive therapy, it's important for people to, in a sense, figuratively take a step sideways and observe their own thinking from a from the side, from an angle, and notice how they're thinking and how they're constructing their experience through certain beliefs and value judgments, rather than getting entangled with those thoughts and getting so close to them that you lose all perspective on them and forget that there might be alternative ways of looking. And then this leads to another trait um, that we study in, in modern psychology, which is called cognitive flexibility. Like, so you, you have to, in order to escape from this tunnel vision, you have to realize that there could be other ways. Of looking. There could be blue glasses or green glasses that you could potentially look at the world through. Um, 
And when you realise that, the very the very fact that you now know that you could switch glasses, like that sense of flexibility, not only does it tend to alleviate stress and depression and anxiety and so on, it, it has a, a moderating effect on strong emotions. So it contributes to emotional resilience, but it also improves our problem solving ability. It may, you know, unsurprisingly in a way, it makes us better at figuring out options and what we could potentially do next. You know, whereas if you get too wrapped up in, in tunnel vision, it makes you rubbish at problem solving because you lose perspective and become rigid in your thinking and it tends to amplify your feelings and make them overwhelming. So that that's why I, I've elaborated on that in a little bit of detail because I think it's probably the, the most fundamental concept in Stoicism. So as you mentioned earlier, that concept in a way runs through most of the other techniques, including the view from above. I agree, Donald, and I think it's even more pertinent uh, today, maybe than ever, or at least as pertinent as it's ever been, because there's just so much noise out there. It's very easy to get wrapped up in kind of, you know, picking up on on one side of an issue or, or you know, I, I think about here we are living in one of the safest times in, in you know, human history, as uh, at least recorded human history. And yet, if you go around asking people or if you turn on the news, you feel like we're living in a Armageddon, uh, you know, post-apocalyptic yeah. uh, world. So I, I think it is very useful sometimes to take a step back and really think about what what what, what is real and how well, how should I be looking at things or how can I look at things? Maybe, um, maybe your listeners might think this is easy. Why aren't why isn't everyone doing this already? Like you know, <laughs> right. they might think you know, this this makes perfect sense. You'd be crazy to wear pink glasses and assume that the world was actually pink. Why would anyone be stupid enough to do that in the first place? Like, and they might think, now that I realise that, I'm never going to make that mistake again, Donald, they might say. And they, you might wonder, why, why do we keep lapsing into this error? And one of the reasons is that we live in a world where, dun, 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 we're surrounded by other people um, who consider it to be in their vested interests to distort Absolutely. reality that's right. on our behalf. And in the ancient world, those guys were called sophists. Like, that's so right. ancient yeah. philosophy was contrasted with the sophists or rhetoricians or orators, you could call them, speech writers. Like, they traded in fear and anger like because they wanted to provoke audiences in order to get their attention. Like, and they became celebrities as a result. And I used to think, geez, the sophists are all dead. Like, you know, that that was like a long time ago. And then it gradually dawned on me that that's pretty much exactly the same thing that social media does <laughs> now. Like, social media is, like, all about selective thinking and taking things out of context. And, you know, it, the news media today are all about, you know, provoking fear and anger by distorting uh, events on, on our behalf. Like, the, everything that they tell right. us comes through, like, coloured lenses, you know, that are shaped by catastrophizing or, or being alarmist or whatever. And that's why we keep getting sucked into it. Like, we're getting brainwashed, like, constantly by this barrage of, like, BS, like, that comes to us <laughs> through the news media and social media. And so the ancient Stoics were not joking, like when they said that philosophy is a weapon that we have to arm ourselves with in order to defend ourselves morally and intellectually 
against sophistry and the baneful influence of other people who want to manipulate uh, our thoughts and feelings by misrepresenting events to us every single day. Yeah, you you really got me thinking um, when you posted a tweet about modern sophistry. And I, I actually started drafting an essay after I read that that tweet and I'm still still working through that right now but I, I think that's a really interesting kind of way of looking at the world and again just to kind of wrap this back into the, to the world of finance I don't know that there's a noisier business um, than finance and I you know I, I try to remind my clients when you turn on the, the the financial news or as some people call it the, the financial porn network yeah um, they're not they're not interested in helping you be a better investor. They're not interested in helping you reach your long-term financial goals. They they're interested in money and clicks. And that comes from saying whatever the most emotion emotive driven thing they can say. And that's exactly what the sophists did yeah. back in antiquity. They 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 were going for applause and claps yeah. and getting people energized. They weren't they weren't worried about the actual message yeah. and whether it was was true. Is that is that Makes yes, sense. Clown show. Like, and the, you know, essentially, like the sophists competed for it. Like, literally, they competed against one another to see who could get the biggest round of applause and attract the biggest, or biggest audience. And they became super wealthy, like, as a result of doing that. Because people thought, geez, you have to hear what this guy's saying some really important sounding stuff. Like, he's saying that we're all going to hell in a handcart, like, tomorrow. Like, oh, yeah, well, this other guy says we're <laughs> right. going to hell in a handcart yesterday. Like, it's getting worse. Like, oh my God, I better go and see him. Like, so, you know, that's how dumb we are as a species, right? Like, and uh, and that was 2,300 years ago. And Socrates was like, I think maybe these guys are clowns. Like, but it, it still happens today. And, you know, of course, yeah. these people's values do not coincide with yours. Like, or your listeners, you know, like they have a vested financial interest and getting clicks and views and you know they're 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 grifters like make money by yeah. trading on fear and anger and manipulating their own they'd go out of business if they told you the truth right like that's right you know people would switch off like and i you know like the wise individuals in any profession pretty much in my experience the guys that you we've all met them you know we've all met guys uh, who we think this guy just seems to really like be have risen above all the noise. Like he's just sitting there, like you know, succeeding, like somehow. And like those guys have often tuned out from like a lot of the noise. They're not like you know caught in the labyrinth of social media and the misinformation. You know they've taken a step back often. Right. right, the people that are that actually understand what's going on, and they're trusting their own judgment more often. Like you know, they're more thoughtful, reflective. They're looking at the bigger picture more, um, and that's what this that's the Stoics want us to learn wisdom. The clue is in the name. Philosophy means love of wisdom. Like the Stoics think, what well, the main thing is, you need to learn to cherish wisdom first and foremost. As I said earlier, Socrates said, uh, wisdom is more important than wealth. Like, but ironically, like the more you value wisdom, like the you no more you'll be able to to manage your wealth successfully as a consequence. 
you know, but if you run around listening to all the noise, you lose wisdom, you become foolish, you get brainwashed, like, and you blunten the the tool, the weapon of your mind. Like, you need to be sharpening your mind, not bluntening it. Like, it gets blunt when you listen to people who make a living by, you know, freaking you out. Donald, you mentioned wealth, and I want to make sure I've got something right as I've kind of continued to dig into the Stoic canon and 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 learn as much as I can. Wealth to the Stoics was really a preferred indifferent. Yeah. In other words, wealth is preferred over poverty, mm-hmm. but wealth is not inherently connected to your your you know how virtuous you are, or it shouldn't be kind of a soul goal or the reason for your for your being and for your decisions it is and that's that's how i've tried to look at it is that am i kind of nailing their viewpoint yeah there? i mean just as an aside the stoics like to complicate they were known for being paradoxical philosophers so often they'll take words and they'll say of course the true meaning of wealth would would actually be synonymous with wisdom like there's right, a kind of right. there's the ordinary sense of the word which people use and so the same with any most words so they will say there's slavery in the ordinary sense of the word where you get shackled you know, and made to clean toilets all day or whatever in ancient Rome, or there's slavery in the, the a deeper sense, which means, you know, like being uh, enslaved to your own anger and fear and so on. So they thought mm-hmm. there's a kind of philosophical meaning of different words, a philosophical meaning of wealth for them um, or, you know, like, and other related terms, which really has to do with inner, like inner wisdom. However, external wealth, property, uh, money to the Stoics is a preferred indifferent. What what really matters is the use that we make of it. Uh, or to put it very right. simply, it's a means to an end. And like you know, someone like a someone who's commits the sin of avarice, someone who's a, is like a miser, um, who's money obsessed, like has forgotten that it's just a means to an end. Like you know, wealth is meant to make us happy. Like, it's meant to improve our well-being and our quality of life. And if it's doing the opposite, if the pursuit of wealth is doing the opposite, then something's seriously wrong. And it might be Mm. some people decide that actually, you know, sacrificing some of their wealth would be more conducive to their well-being and quality of life in the long run or focusing more attention on something else at a certain point in life might become more conducive to their, their well-being or you know, donating their wealth to a charity or something like that, perhaps. But wealth is a tool. Like, it's a means to an end, and we shouldn't confuse it with the, the, the end of uh, our goal uh, of, of life, which is, for the Stoics, basically is moral wisdom. But they also f- describe it as eudaimonia, which is... A notoriously hard word to translate into English, but basically it means fulfillment. Like what we all really want is to feel like we're achieving our true underlying goal. Like we're in alignment with our values and we're doing what's most important to us fundamentally in life. And wealth, like Socrates and the Stoics say, uh, all it gives us is opportunity. Like it gives us more control over uh, over our environment in a sense. And so what what really matters is whether we're using that wisely or foolishly. Wealth might yeah, be the yeah. worst thing that happens to somebody. Like, look at all the people that win, you know, a million dollars and end up blowing it all on uh, crack and prostitutes or whatever, you know, like, 
the people that are drop, yeah. brought down by hangers on, like as soon as they they inherit some money, you know. So the Stoics would say, like, like people are destroyed by wealth, and some people are made by poverty. Like you know, it's the, it could be the best thing that, I, that ever happens to them in a sense. It's a, the founder of Stoicism was a wealthy merchant, Zeno. Uh, he was a Phoenician. He traded purple dye, and he said that he would travel across the Mediterranean trading this dye. And then he was caught in a storm and his ship sank. This is kind of high-risk profession. And all the dye uh, just dissolved in the ocean. It was gone forever. And he said that was the most profitable journey that he ever made, ironically, because right, it, right. it compelled him to have a kind of midlife crisis, start again from scratch, and reinvent himself as a, a, a philosopher. And he used to joke, like, you know, the, the most profitable... Uh, journey that ever made was the one where I lost my entire cargo. You know, I think that's another uh, example of the Stoics being ahead of their time, uh, how they view external wealth. You know, you look at more recent kind of views on this and, and the hedonic treadmill and um, this idea, you know, there was the study that came out, I don't know if it was maybe the early 2000s that, you know, wealth, like physical dollars that that people have, you know, to their name, your net worth uh, or your income, I guess, in this particular example, is only going to help increase your happiness up to a point basically where your basic needs are met and you don't have to worry about scrambling to try to, to find another meal or, or, or you know, get shelter yeah. and, and things like that. After that, the extra money you make really is not correlated to your happiness. Yeah. And, and that goes back to what the Stokes were saying. It's, you know, it can be good or it can be bad. It's really up to up to uh, how it's used, what it's used for, and and the the person's overall view of wealth. And if you're chasing the dollar, if that's your goal, then getting it's not going to help because you're going to be uh, searching for another one immediately. I think let, I would do like a little bit of a deep dive into this for a second because again, your listeners might be thinking, how do we? How why are we so stupid? Then you know, like how is it possible? Like that we keep confusing like the the means. With the end, like if if money is obviously just a tool, like why is it that people end up basing their entire life, their entire self esteem, like around the the pursuit of money to the point where it's actually not making them happy anymore, but maybe potentially doing the opposite? I don't know the answer to that for sure, but I think it's got to do with the fact that we can't read minds. So I think um, the Stoics imply the. You know, it's got to do with the fact that when we're born, we come into the world, like, and we have to kind of figure things out from scratch. Like, we're just thrown into the world, like, and we look around us and we learn by we don't we don't know how to speak, like, you know, as babies, you know, like we eat, we sleep, and gradually we begin to imitate the adults around us. We we learn first and foremost, monkey see, monkey do, by That's emulating. Right. But we don't, we don't even have language at that point. Like, so we don't understand really at first why people are doing the things that they do. We just see what they're doing. And so we have a bias, I think, in terms of emulating the external behavior that we observe in other people. Without, it takes a, a conscious effort to reflect more deeply on what their underlying motives might be. And I think that's where we go wrong. Because we end up placing too much value on the external behavior of others and on the external goals that they're pursuing, and we lose sight 
of the underlying reason that they're doing those things in the first place. We see people going to work every day, like our mum and dad, earning money. And as children, we naturally fall into the trap of thinking, maybe that's what life is all about then, going to work and earning as much money as you can. But we don't see that they're doing it for a reason. Like they're earning that money to protect their family, like and to maintain a certain quality of life and uh, psychological security and so on. They've got deeper, more fundamental goals that are actually motivating them that are kind of invisible to us. They're implicit, like and we have to. It requires wisdom and reflection and pause for us to think about things more deeply and realize, you know, to get a different orientation in life and think, you know, no, like we, you know, it's not life isn't what it seems. It's all smoke and mirrors. Like people aren't doing things for the reasons that we assume. Like, and in fact, many of the people yeah. have forgotten why they're doing those things in the first place. They're all confused anyway. That, that's what I was going to say. I, I even had to, you know, when I started reading about stoicism and this this idea of you know living in accordance with nature and and things like that, it really made me just kind of totally take a step back and question like, what am I doing and why and. It's funny because, you know, being a financial planner and and talking to, you know, people and families about their financial goals and where they want to be, I never really asked them or myself, money aside, not about financial goals, like what is your life goal? You know, what 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 do you want to do? And and I think that's really kind of the the moment when I was really just kind of decided I need I need to do a little bit more you know, thinking about, about my life. I know where I want to be financially, but how can, how can I know where I want to be financially ultimately if I don't know where I want to be just as a person? And so I think that's really important. And I'm really interested in exploring this idea a little bit more thoroughly. And I think, you know, growing up, people tell us, you know, when I was a kid, I remember teachers, parents, you know, everyone saying, you know, you need to get educated so you can get a better job and make, make more money. So, so that's put in front of us as a goal. I don't know that anyone ever told me, you know, to think about my life um, in, in necessarily other areas like this. So money is always in front of us. It's always, you know, we, consumerism is, is, is everywhere. There's always more goods to buy, commercials, ads, yeah. seeing people we- wearing nice things. But people don't talk about philosophy and the philosophy of life very often. Um, and I think maybe that that is part of what's maybe missing from from that whole discussion. Well, look, how much money do people need? You know, like, I mean, you can argue there's a baseline level to some extent, but I'd go further and say that most people blow most of the money on stuff that they don't actually really need or want in the first place. I, I think modern society is incredibly wasteful. Like, you know, if I look at my friends and people that I meet, in the course of life, that are kind of like struggling financially. They're always, you know, some people are always struggling they're, because they're always living beyond their own means. I think there are two types of people in this world. You know, there are people that, that live like within their means and people that live beyond their means. There are people, if you gave them a million dollars, they'd go out tomorrow and spend a million and a half. Like, Absolutely. you know, and they'd, yeah. they'd, all, they'd always be in debt and they're, they're always going to looking for more. And then there's other people that just need to cover their basic. Um, living expenses and and then they feel a sense of freedom they're not really worrying Mm -hmm. about bills and stuff anymore and anything else is just superfluous it sits in their bank account and the kids inherit it or whatever like you know they invest it and you know but they're not they don't what matters is when they spend it like maybe they'll just they only spend so much like you know they're not going to go out and buy a yacht like or a bigger house or a fancier car 
because they're pretty much happy with what they've already got. Um, I think people blow a lot of money. Like, I mean, I'll just give you one little example. Like, I, you know, I, uh, I'm in Montreal at the moment. I lived for a long time in Toronto. Like, when I was a kid, uh, growing up in Scotland, we didn't really go and eat in restaurants very often. Like, it was a kind of unusual thing to do. You know, it'd be like once in a, a blue moon, um, as a, you know, like occasionally as a kind of treat or something like that. A lot of my friends eat in restaurants once or twice a day. Now, yeah. how can that yeah. possibly, you know, like, how can we possibly sustain that? Like, you know, it's obviously going to be more wasteful and more expensive for people to do that. I mean, not everybody can make their own food, but I think a lot of people who have regular jobs, you know, I know people that work in restaurants and then go out and eat in restaurants all the time. Like, how can that yeah. possibly be sustainable financially? Yeah. Like, they're blowing money on things that they don't really need to spend it on. Um, and then they're always miserable, like, because they're always struggling to pay their bills, you know. But that's right. it's partly because they're spending too much. Like, yeah. And it's not making them happy in the first place. Donald, another exercise or technique, I guess, that the Stoics use that I've found very helpful um, in, in many areas, but I'll, I'll, I'll kind of use the financial example um, just for the audience. And, and, and that is kind of this idea of the contemplation of the sage. Like if you're in a situation and maybe you don't know what to do, or, or maybe you're having a, a, a natural reaction to do something um, that maybe you know is not the right thing. This idea to kind of think about what would, in this case, you know, maybe, maybe the market's um, being very choppy and you're getting nervous and you're tempted to like sell your investments and just get out of the whole thing, even though you know that's not the best long-term decision. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what, what would a good investor do? What would the, what would the best uh, long-term investors do? Um, what, how would they be feeling and thinking about this? And that's helped me a lot. I mean, I manage other people's money mm -hmm. and I take that very seriously because, um, it, you know, regardless of, the, of how important money actually is, you know, from a philosophical standpoint, it's very important to people um, in, in reality. And so I take that very, very, very seriously. And I've found that type of exercise, that technique to be very useful to step back and say, look, James, like here, here's the situation you know, don't make a rash de decision, you know, think about what, what would the best investor in the world, the most patient, you know, best long-term investor do in this situation. And I, and I try to use that as a, at least a, a point of reference, um, for making a decision or doing nothing in, in the case of investing, which is often the best decision there is. That, I mean, it's a very strange technique. And uh, I think it's one actually that people struggle to understand a little bit at first. But I'm going to say that one of the main reasons it works is because of the fundamental idea that we mentioned earlier and we said it ran through everything. It's cognitive distancing in disguise. Um, because mm, the, the yeah. advice that you get from an imaginary investor or one that you remember, like, you, you're, you know, like, um, there's only one person uh, giving and receiving the advice in this relationship, and, and that's you. Like, when you imagine what a famous investor would have done, like, you're giving yourself advice. You're probably being kind of selective. You're probably picking a particular role model. Like, you're kind of putting words in them. You're having an internal dialogue with yourself about it. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like having a hand puppet 
which would seem like a crazy, you know, we talked about having these called specs on earlier. Imagine you've got like a glove puppet on and you're kind of like holding it up in front of yourself and having it like in the Muppet Show or Sesame Street or something like that, you know. You're, ha- you're having a conversation with Kermit the Frog, like, but you, it's, you, it's Kermit the Frog is just your hand, right? Like, and you're doing the right. voice. Like, but when we do this kind of imaginary role modeling, you know, I mean, we create a weird situation where it feels like we're observing, analyzing someone else. We're imagining their comments. We might be imagining a conversation with them. But, we, you know, you're the only one in the room. Like, you're accessing your own implicit wisdom, actually, because you're smarter than you realize. Like, you know, we've all got it within us. And how is it possible that we could be smarter than we normally are or smarter than we realize um, it's because of cognitive distancing in part. Like when we are able to step out of our current perspective, out of our tunnel vision, it helps us to think more clearly, more calmly, more rationally, to view the, bro- the broader context, to be more flexible in our problem solving. And it's crazy, but we have to trick ourselves to do that. Like, And one of the tricks, one of the gimmicks that we can use is imagining what other people would do in the same situation. That just allows us to get out of our own head just enough temporarily to actually be able to problem solve more rationally and think more clearly about the situation. So the, these tools are very powerful and they're very important. Um, but even this one, it's really fundamentally, it's about cognitive distancing, cognitive flexibility. It's just about using your own mind. You're using your mind, right? but you're using it in a, a different way. Where you know a way that maybe feels a little bit unnatural at first to some people, a little bit different, like but it can become a habit to think about things from that perspective. A lot of the most powerful therapeutic techniques and techniques in stoicism are, are really about shifting perspective and you know, contemplating the sages like that. It's about looking at things from a different perspective, a different angle. Now, the view from above is about that, it's about looking at things from a different angle, an elevated angle or a broader perspective. And these perspective shifting techniques are quick and easy to do. The more we practice them, the more habitual they become. But they liberate us from being enslaved to our tunnel vision in a way that, that you know, like really uh, can't be overestimated. It's it's priceless. You know, it's the it's the key to uh, like attaining philosophical wisdom. Uh, the Stoics believed. Yeah, and there's one more I want to talk about as well, Donald, and I. I it's funny because as I started reading about stoicism, I was realized like I've been doing some of these things um, without even realizing it. But now that I'm more aware of them as tools, I can reach for them more quickly and more easily. And I think that's been the biggest benefit for me. But one in particular that I used uh, very frequently in the past um, and, st- and do even more now is this kind of premeditation of adversity, this you know, and I'll, and I'll give you an example. I remember, you know, back in 2021, uh, last year, having a conversation with a client when the market was was ripping and roaring, you know, and he he called me and just said, hey, like, this is awesome. You know, you, you're doing a great job. Like, you know, it, it, my my account's just increasing, you know, every single day. It's it's amazing. Keep up the great work. And, and my initial reaction was like, well, you know, I appreciate the compliment, but keep this in mind. It's not going to be that way forever. There's going to be a time where you're going to be calling me, you know, cussing me out, saying, you, you know, I'm losing money, you know, mm-hmm. uh, everything's everything's going going downhill. Like, what are you doing? And just making sure, like that, that this client understood 
there, there's going to be problems. There's going to be another bear market. There's going to be another recession. There's going to be uh, more turmoil. Yeah. Um, so, so don't get too excited in this, in this moment. And that's really helped me as an investor. And it's really helped me um, in having productive conversations with clients as well. Yeah. And then you die. And then you yeah. die. <laughs> well, hey, it goes, it's going to, it's going to get, it's going to get better and then it's going to get worse. Then it's going to get better again, you know, and then you die. Like, you know, I hate to break it to you, but like, you know, but that, that's kind of what happens. And, uh, the, so the Stoics believed we need to be realistic. I mean, in a way, the key to Stoicism is they're, they're philosophers. They want us to use reason. They talk about that a lot. They want us to live in a code of reason. They want us to live rationally. If we live rationally, they think we'll achieve this kind of moral wisdom. But it means thinking very clearly, consistently and objectively about life and facing the truth. Like having the courage, you know, to view things in an objective, realistic way. It sounds silly. The, Sto- the Stoics talk about this and joke about this. They say, look, often we're just telling people stuff that they should kind of know already. Like, and they say, look, if you look around at other people, it's kind of obvious. People make money, they lose money, you know, life has ups and downs and then they die. Like, and it seems obvious to you when you look at the lives of other people around you. But for some reason, right. we have a blind spot when it comes to thinking about our own life in that way, because it frightens us. You know, we get scared. And the Stoics want us to rise above, like, this fear and self-deception and just look in the cold light of day, like, at the, the harsh reality of our life. And what they want to say is when we rip the Band-Aid off, like, and we view things very coolly and objectively, we, we actually achieve fulfillment. Like, you know, right. we become stronger rather than weaker, we become less afraid rather than more afraid, but burying our head in the sand, engaging in selective thinking, and all that kind of stuff. Everybody, like, in psychology, we study the range of coping strategies that people use to deal with stress and anxiety, and there are, like, I don't know, like, dozens of them. You know, people, like, exhibit lots of different emotional, behavioral strategies to cope with stress, and some of them are more effective than others. Like, some people have more of a repertoire of coping strategies than others, But everybody's number one favorite coping strategy throughout history across the whole world is avoidance. Um, Because, Mm. you know, if you want to feel good, like, you know, just turn around and run in the opposite direction from... Yeah, ignorance is bliss. Yeah, ignorance is bliss, man. Like, you know, if you've got a cat phobia, like, and, you know, like, you want to get rid of it, just avoid cats. Like, you know, for the rest of your life. Easy, right? If you can. Um, So everybody instinctively reaches for... And it could be another form of avoidance would be emotional avoidance where we suppress feelings by using drugs or alcohol or by binge-watching Netflix or sex or, you know, whatever. People have become addicted to pornography. Often people do these things to avoid unpleasant feelings. Because a- right. avoidance gives us an immediate uh, bo- like boost, uh, uh, alleviates unpleasant feelings instantly. Like problem is, it's really you know stupid. Like you know, it's it's a coping strategies go. Like it it's you know like the stupidest strategy because it doesn't help us to deal with uh, the situation that's making us uncomfortable, and it may be something we have to deal with. And it actually makes us more vulnerable in the future. So if you're a cat-phobic and you avoid cats, one day you're going to be in a situation where you can't avoid a cat. And by avoiding them, you're actually making your phobia stronger, more intense. 
Like, whereas right. if you just exposed yourself to situations where you encounter cats and it felt horrible and you waited long enough, your anxiety would abate naturally and you'd get over yourself. Like, you'd go over your anxiety, it would feel horrible. But then you'd come out the other side of it and you'd be stronger as a result, right? That's the most robustly established finding in the entire field of psychotherapy research, trademark. You know, like that's, uh, I use that phrase a lot. Like, we call this emotional habituation. It's the basis of uh, a form of modern psychotherapy. It's been around for over half a century now called exposure therapy. Um, we use it to treat phobias and other types of anxiety and some other problems. And it, 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 there's a lot of research in psychotherapy. And, and in those areas where we're still not really sure um, of the solution, like clinical depression is pretty hit and miss. Like, we know a lot about it, but success rate's not really anything to, to shout about. But for phobias, we have a 90% success rate in treating simple phobias within a matter of hours. Like, through exposure therapy, like, behavior therapists nailed it in the 1960s. Like, basically, we know, like, there are many, many studies. Like, it's now taken for granted that we, we know how to, to treat phobias. It's like, yeah, we solved that problem ages ago. Um, but the Stoics would say... The Stoics knew this as well, like, but they would say, well, what about things like our fear of death? What about our fear of poverty? You know, is it possible that we could learn to habituate to those things? So we might still think, I'd rather not be poor, so preferred, dispreferred indifferent, to use the technical jargon of Stoicism. Right, I'd, rather, right. I'd rather not be poor, I'd rather not be dead, like, but thinking about it doesn't freak me out. Like, it's not going to cause me to go away and, like, binge watch Netflix, like, because, you know, I suddenly had some existential angst, like, you know, <laughs> right. to, go and smoke weed all day because I can't handle the thought of my own mortality or something like that. You know, that's why mm -hmm. people's lives are dominated by avoidance strategies and they waste their entire lives. They spend, some people spend their entire life with, like, their head in a cardboard box, like, you know, just trying to, like, hide from the world. Like, they stay at home all day and play computer games and smoke weed or whatever because they're frightened to go out, like, and expose themselves to, like, uh, social situations and, you know, like, yeah. demanding... Absolutely. Uh, ...challenging, you know, situations where there's risk involved. But <clears throat> the Stoics want us to go over that by overcoming our fear of death, they think. Um, Seneca said, uh, he who has learned how to die has unlearned how to be a slave. And what he means is that someone's overcome, who has overcome their fear of death, liberates themselves from most other forms of fear, in a sense. Like, and that, that's why the Stoics talk about the contemplation of death. So we talked about the view from above, the contemplation of the sage, premeditatio malorum, and that kind of ties in with the, the Stoic emphasis on accepting our own mortality as well. And I think that's one of the most powerful, one of the simplest, and one of the most transformative aspects of Stoicism, actually. Like the, you know, if we if we learn to accept our own mortality without freaking out, then we we become free. Like you know, we can't be uh, intimidated in many other situations in life, and you know, really we, we we become truly alive. Like in a sense, for the first time, because we we are able to exercise more freedom. What did Marcus Aurelius say? He said, you know think of yourself as dead and, and you've lived your life, 
now take what's left and, and go go and live it properly or something uh, paraphrased there like a little bit. You've been giving but... a bonus to extra time. Like, you know, imagine you imagine you're already dead. Like and the gods will say, Oh, I said we'll give you another few days. Like Exactly, like, yes. You'll give you a fresh start, right? Alright, you messed that up. You're dead. What did you what you know, like you spent all your time, you know, worrying about stuff and running around like a, a rat in a maze. We'll we'll give you another couple of days. Try and do it properly this time. What are you actually gonna do with those extra couple of days is the thought experiment that he's conducting. Stephen Covey, even in Seven Habits of Highly uh, Successful People, um, talks about this idea of imagining your own funeral. Like It's a yes. technique that's been yes. used in psychotherapy for a long time as well. The eulogy exercise, we sometimes call it. Um, mm-hmm. makes, it comes in many different forms, but many people find that like you know very liberating. Some people say that thinking about their own death makes them depressed. If it makes you depressed, then you're going to have to spend the rest of your life avoiding thinking about it. Like, and that's that's hard on you. Like, you know, like because it's it's difficult to get on with your life when your head's buried in the sand. Like, the, so the Stoics yeah. said you have to face up to your fears. Like, you know, you, you've got to accept the reality of your situation and not be freaked out by it. And that's the only way that you can live in this world. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's it is very powerful. I'd like to circle back. Uh, to one thing you kind of touched on a little bit um, previously, and I've thought about this quite a bit recently, and it's the idea that we treat other people differently than we treat ourselves. So, yeah. so you know, this idea that if a friend comes up to me and says, you know, James, I'm so, you know, I, I lost my job. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm probably going to say something like, hey, man, you know, um, you, you'll, you'll be all right. You, you've got skills um, that, that you can apply. You're, you're an intelligent person. Like, You'll land on your feet. You'll get, you know, just keep a good attitude, you know, stay in there type of thing. But, but if it happens to us, all of a sudden it's, we're on the other side. We're the ones saying, you know, oh my gosh, like, uh, you know, my life is ruined. Yeah. I've been on this path for 15 years and now it's totally derailed. It's, you know, I've lost everything and woe is me type of thing, yeah. you know, and, and I think that's really important. And I, reading the, the letters of condolence that the Stoics often wrote, um, I think is a really cool way to kind of think about, writing them to yourself, yeah. you know, almost if something bad happens, a form of journaling yeah. or, or, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. The Stoics did things like that. Um, for sure. They kind of refer to this. Like you, you could understand that as a form of, of journaling. Um, yeah. I, th- I also think that's a very profound aspect of, of Stoicism. And they do talk about this idea a lot. Like, again, it's tied in with the whole idea of cognitive flexibility and cognitive distancing. Like if someone, if you live in a big city and someone gets their wallet stolen, you think, yeah, like, it's going to happen eventually. Like, it's right. like a place full of pickpockets, right? Like, you know, it's just part of, you know, it's part of the course. Like, these things happen in life. Like, but if it happens to you, different story. Like, <laughs> you think, you say, I can't believe it. How is this possible? Like, how, and the other aspect of it that the Stoics were fascinated by is when people freak out because something happens to them, they tend to express one of the noticeable things, and any therapist would say, yeah, like, clearly this is a thing. People talk as if they're surprised, right? But the stuff that they're surprised about is, like, really unsurprising. So I can't believe that I was in central London and somebody stole my wallet in Oxford Circus. And you're like, dude, it's full of tight pockets. <laughs> like, you know, like, we walk past them every That's day. very true. Like... <laughs> Uh, you know, 
Uh, people go, oh, I can't believe I got COVID or whatever, you know, during the pandemic. Like, I don't know if you've been watching the news, but it's the kind of thing that a lot of people are getting right now. Like, so... It's so true. Yeah, people, but it happens to them. It's like a big shock. You know, I can't believe that somebody tried to con me. Like, I can't believe that this guy, a car mechanic, lied to me. Like, or something. You go, yeah, because that, like, never happens to anyone else. You know, but we all know these things happen to other people all the time. But we act as if it's, like, a shock. And the Stoics thought this was really weird. They were like, why are people suddenly so naive? Like, why are they suddenly so acting surprised? It's like they're feigning ignorance. And in a way, I think it maybe in part it has to do with rhetoric. Like, if we want to really get sympathy from people, then we we act surprised and shocked at something. And, you know, it's a way of eliciting more sympathy. But we fall into the trap of believing it ourselves. Like, we brainwash ourselves every day through the rhetoric that we use like, we tell ourselves, I can't believe this. How could it happen? How could someone do that? So, you know, blah, blah, blah. none of this stuff makes any sense at all. Like, that whole way of thinking about it is childish, like, rhetorical, like, uh, you know, obviously uh, irrational, unphilosophical. Like, you know, we should say, say la vie. Like, well, you know, go, you know going back to your, your wallet example, if you go up to your friend and say, yeah, I had my... While it's you know stolen last night, when I called the bank and uh, put a hold yeah. on any charges and got you know everything's good. Yeah, there, there's not a story there. They're not going to feel sympathetic towards you. But if you say, "Oh my gosh, it was the scariest thing ever!" I turned around and my wallet was gone, and I saw someone running. And I, you know, yeah, it's it's a lot more emotional and it's a lot more uh, you know exciting in a sense, and it's going to get more sympathy. Yeah. So I mean, I've had my wallet stolen three times, by the way. Like, not my wallet, wallet and or mobile phone. I think my wallet was stolen once and my mobile phone was stolen twice. It, 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 yeah. Always in London. Like, I agree. It hasn't <laughs> happened to me in Greece yet. Like, I'm waiting. Athens is also full of pickpockets. Like, but it hasn't happened to me in Athens. Some of my friend had her uh, mobile phone stolen while I was with her in Athens. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of waiting, uh, you know, for the day. <laughs> like, I'm initiated into Greek pickpockets so, so, eventually so you're not you're not going to be surprised i won't be surprised well i can't be now because i've said on your podcast like <laughs> you know but it's um you know it's uh it's part of like maybe it wouldn't happen but i wouldn't be surprised if it happened because it sort of happened to one of my friends right in front of my eyes like and uh you know it happens to people all the time you see pick up it's the same with any setback and like someone rear ends your car Right, or whatever. I can't believe it. How could that like it happens all the time, buddy? Like, you know right. these things happen, like, you know, you slip on the ice, you know, people like uh people's wives sleep with other dudes, like, you know, people's people's partners lie to them, people steal money from you. Like and yeah. I also I people are gonna people are gonna hate me for saying this, right? But it's true, right? If it didn't happen, you'd all die of boredom. Like, because uh, life, you know, all the things that we hate about life and complain about, honestly, like, if there weren't any pickpockets or liars or braggarts or narcissists or whatever, like, I, what would be the point? Like, it's, we need aspiring partners in life. We, it's easy, you know, we, we, we forget, like, that there has to be friction. Like, if the world was perfect, 
and everybody was completely enlightened, like the the Stoic Republic, where it's populated with ideal sages. They're all benevolent. They're all wise. No one ever gets into arguments. You know, nothing ever goes missing. Like it would be, I think, incredibly boring. You know, like life is bus- doing business is only interesting because of the obstacles that you encounter. Like we need adventure. We need pushback in life. You know, people are interesting because they're all flawed individuals. Uh, the Stoics want us to think of it. Most ancient philosophers were martial artists, like um, in a way that's just kind of alien to our culture. Like in the after the Industrial Revolution, like we all you know started to treat different roles in life as if they were compartmentalized. Um, like a psychotherapist is different from a philosopher now. It's two different professions. Like right. a theologian is a different thing, and like a you know. But in the ancient world, there wasn't a clear boundary between these different things, and there wasn't a clear boundary between athletics and religion, or religion and philosophy, like the or athletics and music and dance, like you know martial arts, military cadet training, and and dance like you know all these things were interwoven as part in the culture and most ancient philosophers like underwent training in boxing and wrestling and pancratian and and like uh fi- like fencing uh fighting like fighting mm-hmm. with weapons um and they you know they did uh, they did these things just as as part of their normal upbringing um, so it's very familiar to them to think you have sparring partners, like, right. and if your sparring partner was too easy, you'd die of boredom, like, and you would never learn anything, like, you would never, you'd never right. get any better, like, uh, you'd become weak. But if your sparring partner's too difficult, you just get uh, beaten up all the time, and you probably yeah, no one likes to be constantly pummeled. Yeah, you know, you don't want to be like constantly pummeled, like. You're, you're, you know, like if it, if you get beaten like within the first few seconds of every like mat, you're probably not going to like progress much. So you kind of need to choose your battles. But you know, and the Stoics genuinely think that's a big part of what life is about. Like they think every individual for himself needs to take responsibility for picking. We do it for our children. Like you know, we hopefully we encourage our children to do things that are challenging but not overwhelming. And so the parents are, right. and educators are responsible for doing that. They say, um, solve this math problem. Like, and if the kid's like, there's not a cat in hell's chance I'd be able to figure this out. You know, it's way beyond my level. Like, if you do that every day, they're just going to get demoralized. But if you just keep mm. asking them, you know, what does one plus one equal, they're never going to learn anything. So you set math challenges that are, like, push them, like, a little bit out of the comfort zone each time. And cause them to progress and develop, but then your parents die, like, and they kick you out of school, like, and you have to start doing this for yourself. You've got to take responsibility for managing your own life, like, and choosing your own battles and testing and challenging yourself. And some people will live avoidantly and they'll just never accept any challenges, and then they wither and die, like, you know, they die morally, uh, psychologically. Because they're, they're never exercising their minds or emotions by facing any difficult situations in life. And, uh, yeah. and other people just throw themselves haphazardly into situations where they panic and feel completely overwhelmed because they're not ready for them. 
There's a famous passage in Epictetus where he's talking about the fact that bulls kill lions. Um, I didn't even know that they did this, but I've seen uh, videos of it now. They, they, like the alpha like, bull in the herd or whatever will toss a lion on its horns. They'll throw it in the air, mm-hmm. like make mincemeat of it, defending the, the herd from this predator. And Epictetus says, how does, a, how does a bull know that it can kill a lion? Because uh, when it's young, when it's a calf, it's prey for lions. The lions will pick off the like the, right. the weaker member, the younger members of the herd. Like so, how does it? How does it know? Like it can kill a lion, and he says the answer is it takes time. Like over the course of many years, it gradually, you know, maybe it fights with other members of the herd. It tests itself gradually in steps and stages until it figures out what the limits of its abilities and strengths are. Like a, a wrestler sparring different opponents, you know, it learns by studying itself. This is what the Greeks mean by know thyself. We have to study ourselves. We only learn about ourselves in challenging situations. And Epictetus says to his students, like, how do we know whether we should face a challenge? He says, if the house that you're in is a little bit smoky, like, but you can deal with it, then stay in the house. But if it's too smoky, then open the door and leave. He said, you're the only one that knows the answer to that. Like, you have to observe yourself and figure out what's too much for you to deal with and what's a challenge that you're big enough and tough enough to handle. Um, but, you know, it takes a conscious decision and responsibility for our own well-being to do that. And I think most people are too lazy or, or they are, you know, too avoidant or they've never been taught, like, the that's something that we have to actively do. This is why Marcus writes the meditations. Like he's spending time, investing time every day, systematically for decades. He'd been training in Stoicism for four decades before he wrote the meditations. Every day. Like he invested time every day in developing his character. He became his own father. His father died when he was three or four years old. Like... He, his mentors died, like his stoic teachers. He took over the job. Like, he became his own father, his own teacher, his own mentor. Like, he had conversations. That's why the book originally was called To Himself. Like, he's passing on wisdom and advice to himself, like a, a teacher or a therapist would. But he has to do it because no one else is going to do it for him by that point. Um, particularly on the frontier, there weren't any other philosophers around. He was with the military. He thought, I have to do this for myself now. Um, so I think, you know, this is the, the main thing, in a sense, that many people need to learn is, is just taking responsibility like, for their own well-being. And, and that means actually putting in the hours. Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus both, What's what I find really fascinating is they they are both great examples and, and they both have credibility on dealing with challenges, but for, for very different kind of circumstances. I mean, Marcus Aurelius was, was the emperor of, of the Roman Empire, which of course meant he had an incredible amount of power, an incredible amount of riches. Um, but yet uh, he had to, to, to very deeply practice Stoicism because he was dealing with, you know, the death of his children, the death of his wife, uh, the Antonine Plague fighting the the you know barbarians invading from the north he was dealing with all of these things and epictetus on the other hand was born a slave yeah. he was 
basically, I, you know, crippled, I guess, um, y- you could say. So he was dealing with very physical and, um, y- you know, just right out of the gate dealing with incredible challenges of life. Yeah. In both of them, from two different spectrums of, of you know, wealth and nobility and relied on the same philosophy to kind of thrive. So I, I think that just kind of is a testament to the fact that Stoicism is useful for anybody as a philosophy of life if you apply it. Marcus Aurelius, in a sense, had more responsibility in his shoulders than any man in history, almost. You know, he, uh, he was responsible for defending the whole Roman Empire. Uh, including Rome, Egypt, Greece, against these massive barbarian incursions that would have changed the face of European history. We even forget that. I mean, we, we kind of know that. But when we read the meditations, it seems quite banal. He actually talks about how to cope with people that have bad breath in the, in the meditations. <laughs> you think, dude, you're single-handedly responsible for preserving Western civilization. Like, we'd all be speaking proto-German today. Like if if you can if you decided that you weren't going to get out of bed one morning, like that's right, you know, like the he it was on a balancing on a, a razor's edge, um, you know the the Germanic Marcomanni invaded across the Alps. There was for the first right. time a barbarian enemy had crossed the Alps since Hannibal, like and invaded northern Italy. They were like a hop, skip, and a jump away from Rome, um. And uh, Rome collapsed eventually, but, you know, by that time, it's Roman culture and uh, like Greco-Roman culture had, had started to permeate, uh, like, the whole of uh, the Western world. And, right. um, you know, like, the, the, the culture, like, had been preserved by that point. But by Marcus's time in the second century AD, it could have been maybe snuffed out. Like you know, we uh, we owe him a lot. You know, he 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 f- like uh, forestalled the the onset of the dark ages. Like you know, so like yeah, mm-hmm. so I'm you know I, I'm kind of like you know being making light of it a little bit, but it's pretty serious. Like he had a lot of responsibility on his shoulders. Like we, it's difficult to exaggerate. He took command of the largest army ever massed on a Roman frontier. There were about 140,000 men under his command, if you can even imagine that. I think sometimes we forget how big ancient armies were. Um, You know, 140,000 Roman soldiers, a naval fleet on the Danube, auxiliary units. Like, you know, it was a colossal undertaking. Um, and he'd never served in the military before that point, as far as we know. You know, he just kind of found himself in a situation where he didn't really have any choice. But he went to the front line. Like, he left Rome probably for the first time, um, or it's surrounding, you know, left Italy for the first time, crossed the Alps, and went to modern day Austria, um, and was surrounded by foreigners to him. Like, in a, you know, really must have felt like he was on Mars. Like what would have been to him mm-hmm. an incredibly alien landscape and setting, um, and so that's when he started writing the meditations. You know, he he had to he had to adapt immediately um, to. Uh, and by that time, people were dropping like flies from the plague around him, um, and they they allegedly the Romans had lost twenty thousand soldiers in a single battle. 
Ekonantum, um, which would, mm. if true, would have been one of the most serious military defeats in Roman history. Like, you know, that, that that's huge. And, and yet Marcus went there, um, you know, a, a bureaucrat and a massive nerd, like philosophy geek. And he, yeah, he was a nerd, yeah, no doubt about that. He was that. a massive nerd. He would be happy with that, I think. Um, yeah. And then he put himself in this overwhelming situation. And, and we're, we're lucky he survived long enough to, like, uh, bring a degree of stability to the, the region. Uh, we really do I, owe him a debt historically. I think that that's makes it very clear that the meditations were written not meant to be published yeah. or as some like manifesto because the fact that he is talking about how to deal with someone with bad breath and things like that these these were constant small reminders you know pointing out his own flaws and trying to coach himself um in dealing with them that to me is like okay this this is legitimate this wasn't a guy who's trying to like write a history book and and self praise this is actually the opposite this is a guy trying to trying yeah. to survive and and make really important decisions with a with a level head in the midst of utter chaos all around him. We're like 99% sure it was intended for publication. There are several reasons for that. One is that we don't really hear anything about the meditations until centuries later, with like maybe one minor exception. Like, so it was probably circulated privately, like, and then only published much later. And also he, he says he's very critical of himself in a way that it would have been imprudent to publish during his rule. He's also implicitly or explicitly very critical of other people in a way that it, it probably wouldn't have been a good idea to publish at the time. And also some of the passages are extremely polished rhetorically, and then some of them aren't. Like, so, and it lacks the structure of a, a work that's been designed for publication. So sometimes there's like a cluster of things on a particular topic. And then sometimes everything's just kind of like jumbled. So it clearly right. looks like it would require editing. Um, and stylistically, it, it kind of looks it's been as if it's not really written in a consistent style. And then also he says things that are would only have meaning to him. Like he refers to private conversations and private letters without explaining what the contents were. So that's cryptic to us. Like we don't know what he's talking about. He says, you know that letter that Junius Rusticus wrote to my mum like when like he was on the Appian Way? And you're like, no, we don't. Like, we haven't read it. I have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about, buddy. Like, so he didn't write that for us. He wrote, you know, he could only have written that for himself, really. There would be yeah. no point publishing that. So there's a bunch of reasons, really, that suggest it has all the hallmarks of something that was intended mainly as a, a private notebook. Yeah, I agree. He's certainly one of the most interesting historical characters I've ever come across. And it's just so fascinating to be able to read about someone like Marcus Aurelius, who who lived when he did and how he did and had the power he did and like actually be able to relate to this person's problems. You know, you would think like someone over 2000 years ago, who's the emperor of a, uh, of a massive, the world's largest empire. Like I'm not going to have anything in common with him. I'm not going to have the same problems and in, in dealing with the same types of people with him. And yet here I am 2000 years later, uh, just a regular guy in a, in, a, in modern society reading these passages and they're resonating because they, they are applicable and relatable to my everyday life. It's just, that's what really got me on this stoicism 
um, you know, kick, I guess, and got me interested in learning so much more was the fact that that stuff still holds true to someone in a totally different, uh, you know, experience in a totally different time so many years later. So I think it's really fascinating. And Donald, I think you do a wonderful job taking Marcus's story and really kind of mixing it to where you're telling the history and, and helping us get some insight into how he lived and what he was thinking and what his experiences were, but then also taking the lessons and showing how they can be applicable to us for anyone who's wanting to just live better, uh, um, you know, kind of on the whole. So I really appreciate the way you write and I'm really looking forward to Verissimus coming out. Like I said, that'll be my first, uh, first go, I think, at ever reading a graphic novel. So congratulations on that. Thanks. You know, I hope it reaches a slightly different, broader audience. You know, I was saying I'd be really delighted if somebody, there are people out there, even if there's one one person that said, you know, Donald, I don't read normal self-help books or history books, you know, but I kind of like comics. I like 300 and I like uh, gladiator movies and things. You know, uh-huh. and I picked up this just because I liked the cover, like, and I read it, and it made me think differently about anger or fear of death or something like that. Like, like I'd be um, delighted uh, to think, you know, that we just kind of reached somebody that would never have stumbled across this stuff otherwise. So that's one of the things that I find most kind of rewarding about uh, having created something in a, a different medium, a different genre like uh, the graphic novel. It's like, yeah, I don't expect it to be read by children. It's kind of PG. There's like, you know, like uh, some torture and crucifixion and plague and, you know, some heavy conversations about death. But, uh, yeah, I think, older kids. Yeah, maybe. older kids yeah. maybe. Like, and, uh, yeah, kids these days like that kind of stuff. Maybe. I don't know. Like, they do, but they probably do. <laughs> like, but they, um, you know, if just people read it that wouldn't normally read books on stoicism, then, you know, I think it's the same as when people watch Gladiator. I remember, it's, geez, like it's 20 years ago now that Gladiator came out. Gladiator's a great yeah. movie. It's historically inaccurate, right? Although we're, it's right. more historically accurate, I think, than a lot of people realize. Like, the, the, it's not totally, like, bonkers. Uh, the bits that people think are most inaccurate in it are actually some of the bits that are potentially accurate. But the uh, it's it's not meant to be a, a a documentary about history. But a lot of people watch that. There's hardly there's like about two or three fleeting references to to, to stoicism in it. Like you, you know, blink and you'll miss them. But people watch that movie and they went and read the meditations because in the first act, Richard Harris plays Marcus Aurelius. Right, and right. I know people that told me they were reading the meditations because they'd seen Gladiator. You know, and these guys maybe never picked up a book otherwise. Like, so that, you know, that means a lot to me, the idea that we can maybe reach people like that are kind of, you know, for whom these ideas are completely novel otherwise. No, that's brilliant because, I, you know, so many people kind of all read the same books, you know, yeah. like there's kind of that, that group that reads like every self-help book or that group that reads every financial book that comes on or every philosophy book within a certain you know, realm or, or school of, of philosophy. So I think it's great anytime someone can cross over and, and perhaps introduce a new idea. Those people get to a invariably, new, to a new invariably those people, like the people that are new to it are the ones that get the most out of it. The people, when you're, if you're, if you're a therapist or a counselor, 
there's a type of client that you meet that are fairly, maybe like once a week, right? There'll be a client who kind of, uh, they'll be maybe on, on Skype or whatever, and they'll turn around and they'll wave their arm at their bookcase and they'll, they'll say, oh, like, I, you know, I've read every self-help book that's ever been published kind of thing. You know, I'm a self-help junkie, they'll say. Um, mm-hmm. And then you'll kind of think, how come you're in therapy then? Like, (laughs) you know, like, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but people that describe themselves as self-help junkies are usually some of the most uh, troubled (laughs) individuals that you've ever met, right? Um, That is true. And they'll show they've got a whole pile of self-help books here. And I go on all these workshops uh, to meditate on my chakras or whatever. And, you know, I Mm, go to all these gurus and uh self uh, improvement teachers and you know i sat all day on the internet reading self-help blogs and stuff like that and yeah then, life coaches and all the bit they're not any better off like often the internet is awash with bad psychological advice like it's like a lot of the advice that people get from self-help literature is is really just kind of encouraging them in, in the wrong direction um, I think the Stoics are just as a like. I guess a final thing. This is kind of my hobby horse, or my kind of little thing that I like to emphasise to people. I, I think, like, I'd warn people against that. I think the internet is awash with bad psychological advice, and the problems it causes are subtle. Like you wouldn't expect people to notice. It's not as obvious as it, you know you might think. Um, one of the biggest like most subtle problems that people face in life is when they're given what seems like good advice, but it points them down the wrong direction so that they're ignoring something. You know, they're putting out the fire in their garden shed, but and they think this is really important. I have to put out this fire in my garden shed. And you're like, dude, your house is burning down behind you. <laughs> like, And so a lot right. of self-help advice distracts people from the real self-improvement challenges that they face. And the number one, and there are psychological reasons why this would be the case, the most neglected area is anger management. And, you know, people on the internet are talking about confidence, self-esteem, anxiety, depression. Hardly any of them are doing anything to address their anger, prejudice, and hostility towards other people. Like, it's mm-hmm. relatively rare. And I'll go further and say that there are famous, some of the most famous self-improvement gurus in the world, some of the most successful authors, who clearly are very angry people and attract very angry people. And their videos and websites are full of comments from angry young men and women that just seem to be getting angrier and angrier. Like, because there's, there's such a thing as toxic self-help. And self-improvement, you know. And like I say, I, I think the, the subtle problem, but it, it, I call it subtle, but it's absolutely everywhere now, is that people are doing what seems like plausible self-help, but neglecting these weeping sores that they have morally and psychologically that are where they should really focus. The Stoics knew that. And that's why they say that the most urgent area that we need to focus on is anger. Seneca has an entire book that survives today on the psychotherapy of anger. It's the, you know, the pot that nobody is watching boil. Like, it's the royal road to self-improvement. Usually, it's other people that have to tell us that we need to manage our anger. Um, people very seldom self-refer to psychotherapy for anger management. It's their wife that tells them they have to go. 
you've got a problem with your temper. You need to go and see a therapist. I don't want to. You know, it's not me that needs therapy. It's everybody else. And eventually, you know, their wife or their husband or their boss. Yeah, they're they're forced. (laughs) Yeah. In schools, school children are sent for anger management. Prison inmates. Guys in the military. Mm -hmm. Like, but normally it's somebody else that refers you. Um, because people with anger typically don't believe they have a problem. Now, in a culture where self-help is pervasive and people have the freedom to choose their own self-help, the problem is they're biased in favour of choosing forms of self-help that don't address anger. Like They're no longer listening to other people saying, that's not your real problem. Your real problem is the fact that you're on the internet all day trolling strangers, like shouting <laughs> abuse. Uh, people that that's, don't agree that's a really interesting with political point. views you know that's partly why you know we we you the internet is like this wild west place that's just full of people threatening each other like and calling each other names and stuff i think before long people are going to start to realize that it's a toxic swamp and well, we can't go on we need to do something to try and fix it but stoicism is one of the things that i think really offers as a solution I, I don't have your background by any means in, as far as therapy goes, but I did recently, and I'm not as good of a writer as you are either, but I, I did write uh, an essay back, I think, in April or May of this year called Stop the Cycle of Imitation Outrage. Yeah. And what what I think is interesting is it it's almost like if you're not angry, you feel like you should be angry because everybody else is angry. So yeah. you're going to find something to be angry about. And that's a little bit disturbing yeah. to me. I think anger um, is when you're upset about something. Outrage is when you're upset about the fact that other people don't share your anger. I can't believe mm, everyone else isn't I like angry that. I like that. Like, it, it's, it, we want to spread it. You know, misery loves company. Like, and so it, it's... People, you know, often express outrage. Like, I can't believe everyone else isn't angry. They'll even say it. You know, I want everyone. So you want everyone else to be as angry as you are. Like, but even though your anger is completely impotent and it's clouding your judgment, like you think it's ah. a really good idea that everyone, you, like everyone else should should be like you. Like, yeah, why isn't everyone mad? Yeah, why isn't everyone <laughs> That's else? True. Anger, the Stoics. Do they not see it? <laughs> the Stoics thought anger is stupidity. Like, and they're right. They said anger is temporary madness. Like, they're right. I mean, it seems odd at first when you say that. There are certain things I find, you know, at first when you say them, people act shocked. And then you give a 30-second explanation and they're like, oh, yeah, actually, you've got a point there. And suddenly they agree with you. Like, it can turn on a dime, right? And one of them is anger. Mm-hmm. You say, like, anger is just stupidity. And people are like, no, no, that's that's not right. I, I, anger can be really important sometimes. We should all be angry. Because that's what they've heard other people saying. And then you say, well, like, let's think about this for, like, a second. You know, there's a ton of research that clearly shows that when people become angry, their brain enters a different state and it biases their judgment. Like, at many, many different levels. Anger people, angry people are shown to be poorer at rational problem solving. Like, they're rubbish at solving interpersonal problems because they think in simplistic black and white terms and overgeneralizations. They underestimate risk. So they tend to expose mm-hmm. themselves and other people to increased risk. Like, you know, there's a whole bunch of ways in which getting angry just makes you bad at, like, reasoning. Like, so why would you think that that's, like, a good idea? And why would you think it's an even better idea to make everybody else join you? Like, <laughs> in entering into a state of mind that makes you poorer at solving problems. 
Like, and they're like, I, I hadn't really thought about it. Like, anger is stupidity. <laughs> like, and so in a society that celebrates anger is literally a, what's that, you know, movie, like, you know, like, idiocracy or whatever. Like, that, that's where we're entering into. Like, by having a society that celebrates anger, we have a society that, that like, by its very nature, celebrates stupidity. Mm. Now, I... I think that's a brilliant place to to kind of start wrapping up. I've got a couple of questions I I always ask um, at the end of the interview. The first one we've already kind of talked about, but I'll let you answer it. Uh, you know, just from a personal standpoint, not so much from a you know the stoic uh, answer, although they might be the same. Uh, you've been at it so long, um, and that question is, what does wealth mean to you? I think wealth, as I, I touched on it a little bit earlier in passing when I said for the Stoics, wealth and wisdom are synonymous. Like, I don't think, like, some of the wealthiest... Socrates said that the wealthiest man he ever met was called Antisthenes. And Antisthenes didn't have any shoes. Like, and he dressed like a tramp, like a beggar, a homeless person. Um, and Socrates joked, his friends thought this was ludicrous, and Socrates would be like, Antisthenes is the wealthiest guy I know. And Antisthenes said, yeah, you're right, like, because um, wealth consists in having more than you need. And he said, you, you guys have a lot of stuff, but you, feel, you always feel as if you need more. He goes, my needs are so simple, like, the, I've always got more than enough to satisfy them. And I think that's what wealth means. Is I, one of the ways I'd explain that is a certain wisdom that only does come with experience as I get older, I spend less money. Like, the more money I earn, the less I find myself spending. You know, I I find that I'm content living in a relatively small place. You know, most of my possession... I don't own a car. Like, I don't... Uh, most of my possessions fit in one small suitcase, like, in a rucksack. I have one pair of boots. Like, um, you know, I, like, I find too much stuff a hindrance. Um, so I think wealth yeah. really consists in reorienting and calibrating so that you find contentment in simpler things um, and that your, your needs are satisfied and, and so really it comes, true wealth comes from within like it, it's psychological it's got to do with your attitude uh, your expectations and that's I think what the Stoics mean when they say that, that true wealth consists in arity or moral wisdom it, was it was it Epictetus who said wealth consists not in having great possessions, but in having few wants? Yeah. Or was that? He, was that I yeah, think Epictetus says that, but it would be a well-known phrase. Like that's pretty essentially what Antisthenes says and Socrates says as well. He who has the the yeah. least wants the the gods want nothing. I think it is it Antisthenes or Marcus Aurelius. It says uh, Marcus Aurelius quotes Antisthenes. There's a saying that the gods, the Greeks would say that God, the gods want nothing, like the gods need nothing, and therefore a man uh, is closest to the gods the less he needs. The fewer wants he has, the closer he is to becoming ah, godlike. Lovely. And then the last question, Donald, is if you could go back in time and uh, talk to, uh, say, an 18-year-old Donald and give yourself some piece of advice what would you tell yourself i tell myself to reflect more on my own experience i tell myself to review my life 
objectively from a detached perspective as if I was studying the life of a stranger like another person and notice simple everyday things like I say to myself once you reach 18 you know sit down and make a mental inventory of all the times that you've lent people money and ask yourself how what percentage of the time they paid you back for instance you know, like how many times did you lend people something and like they a book or something and did how many times did they give you it back? Like what what did you notice <laughs> about the type of people um that repaid debts and things? Or just in general, like, you know, I think of all the times that you've experienced what seemed like a setback and then what happened next. Like think of all the amount of time that you spent worrying about stuff. Like how many minutes and hours have you spent so far worrying about stuff? What percentage of the things that you worried about actually happened what percentage of them when they did happen were as bad as you thought they were going to be uh what percentage of them like were you as unable to cope with as you you uh feared you you might have been and so on i i'd say to myself instead of reading so many books maybe like spend more time just reflecting on your own experience as if you were an anthropologist studying a, a foreign tribe or you know, a, a psychologist, uh, you know, making a, a detailed study of uh, someone else's behavior. Ah, that's lovely. Uh, that, no one has said anything quite like that yet in response to that question, but I think that's uh, really interesting and well said. So um, to wrap up, I guess, Donald, uh, where can where can the listeners find you and uh, learn more about your books? And I know you've got courses going on as well, and uh, Verissimus will be coming out probably uh, sometime soon. Yeah. So where can people learn more about you? Well, they can get these books anywhere. People ask, where can you get the book? The answer is from any good bookshop, but you can just order books from anywhere. Um, the, my website is donaldrobertson.name and they can find all my social media and everything, my courses that I run and everything there if they're interested. I do run, I have a course I'm running at the moment on Marcus Aurelius. It's quite a big course. It runs over four weeks. It's quite an in-depth one. I've got one that I run, I run Socrates as well. The graphic novel comes out on the 12th of July. And uh, I've got another book, which is a biography of Marcus Aurelius that's coming out from Yale University Press, probably the around about spring 2023. So, yeah, people are interested. I'm also the founder and president of the Plato's Academy Centre. I haven't mentioned that, but it's a non-profit and we run a lot of free uh, conferences and events that people might be interested in, um, based in Athens and Greece, but it's an online international community that they can come and check out. And uh, we have a virtual event happening soon about the Socratic method in philosophy and psychology that's very popular. So there's a lot going on. Very, very busy. Like Yes, that's wonderful. And uh, there's so you know, there's many resources available to people if they're interested in learning more. Yeah, I I, I already got my uh, ticket by the way for the um how to think like Socrates uh course that's coming up. Cool. So I'm excited um for, for that mm-hmm. one. But it's it's really been uh, delightful, Donald. I've I've certainly learned a ton as I have uh, from your your um, articles, your 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 book, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, and you know other um, interviews you've done. I just I think you're just a great ambassador. I wouldn't even really say the word ambassador, educator. I think on on stoicism and uh, how it can be useful. And also, I find it just interesting, even if I didn't find it useful. So uh, from a historical standpoint, so thank you for. Uh, you know, putting out such great material that can help people like me continue to learn more about stoicism and, 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 you know, 
and thus doing so improve myself a little bit. Well, thank you very much. It's been very kind of you to say so. It's been a, a pleasure uh, appearing on the podcast. I've really enjoyed our chat. Absolutely. Thanks, Donald. You have a wonderful, wonderful day. You too. Thanks for listening to that discussion on Stoicism. I've learned so much from Donald, and I'm looking forward to collaborating with him very soon. I'm excited to announce that I'm in the early stages of revamping the podcast, so stay tuned for more information in the coming weeks and months. If you're interested in learning more about Stoicism, check the show notes. I've linked to some of my favorite resources. Until next time, cheers.